Hey guys, today I'm talking with Christine Runyon. We have a great conversation around how the medical profession can sometimes make you feel like you gotta always have it together and how like everyone around you is so perfect. But when in reality, the truth is we're all flawed. So, you know, everybody's got struggles. We all have challenges. We're far from perfect. I think the real problem occurs when we pretend like everything is all good all the time, when in reality it's not. Christine and I talk about how this negatively affects physicians' mental health, and we discuss some of the ways you can address this more proactively. So in our conversation today, it totally reminded me of a song. The song is Truth Be Told by Matthew West. So I wanted to read a couple of the lyrics from the song. Lie number one, you're supposed to have it all together. And when they ask you how you're doing, just smile and tell them never better. Lie number two, everybody's life is perfect except yours. So keep your messes and your wounds and your secrets safe with you behind closed doors. Truth be told, the truth is rarely told. Now, I say I'm fine. Yeah, I'm fine. Oh, I'm fine. Hey, I'm fine, but I'm not. I'm broken. And when it's out of control, I say it's under control, but it's not. And you know it. I don't know why it's so hard to admit it when being honest is the only way to fix it. There's no failure, no fall. There's no sin you don't already know, so let the truth be told. I would have sung it if I had a good voice, but I think, so in this example, he's talking about the perfect Christian and in the perfect church and how it's easy to become more concerned about looking the part than living the part or more concerned about appearance than about what's going on the inside and how that's all a big lie. And how real people are not perfect at all. They're not always okay. And that's okay in itself. It's actually human. So I think it's so similar to what working on your mental health looks like. It's okay to not be okay. That's where it all starts really. And so we're going to talk today about getting to this point in your mental health and more. So let's jump into today's episode. Christine, welcome to the podcast. Thanks. Thanks so much for having me. I'm happy to be here. Yeah, so I'm excited to talk about your expertise and some of the work you've been doing, particularly around the area of helping physicians with their mental health. I think there's a ton of value there. It's a big topic. There's a lot of growth potential there for people. But before we get into kind of the weeds of talking about that, I was curious if you could share a little bit about your background and kind of where you got where you are today and what you do. Absolutely. So I'm a clinical health psychologist and I've spent all of my career working in mainstream healthcare, both inpatient and outpatient settings in a variety of different ways. I actually started as a psychologist in the Air Force and worked in primary care settings in the Air Force and then have really enjoyed working at this intersection as a psychologist in medicine because so much of our psychological health or ill health shows up in our bodies really working in primary care settings primarily to be able to help people identify and then address their overall health, often through psychological treatment that then shows some positive effect in their physical health. So that's been my clinical practice. And through that, obviously working alongside other clinicians, physicians, primarily nurse practitioners, nurses, and so seeing through through that work, 
what opportunity there is to also support and work with my colleagues. Just I will share a little bit in terms of how I got really interested in clinician well-being was serving as the director of behavioral science for a family medicine residency. So I was in charge of all the overall curriculum for their behavioral science education. And I also did some clinical work myself in that setting and and a little bit of applied research and found the work just frankly, you know, exhausting. (laughs) And I have all the skills that I have as a psychologist to be able to bring not just to my patient care, but to myself and realize that some days it just didn't feel enough and didn't feel sufficient. And I looked around kind of at my medical colleagues to know that this is actually not at all a part of their training pathway and of their, you know, implicit or explicit curriculum. And so wondering how do they do this if I'm feeling so exhausted in this work and so under-resourced, how do they do it? And that's really where I got interested in clinician well-being. So I've spent my career both as a psychologist doing direct service provision as an educator, a little bit of applied research And then for the last five years, I've been pretty focused on clinician well-being through the lens that I bring to it, which is as a psychologist. And you started a business or helped start a business. How long ago was it that you started Tend Health? Co-founder of Tend Health and Tend Health, we focus exclusively on mental health care for health professionals, primarily physicians and well-being within healthcare organizations as well. And we started, we actually just had our one year anniversary for our date of filing. So June of 2020. Happy anniversary. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you. So we're brand new and started at, in some ways, you know, kind of a precarious time and in some ways sort of a perfect time based on the work that we do a lot of all of our work through a video telehealth platform. And again, care for primarily physicians. We built the service actually with physicians in mind because of all of the external and internal barriers to seeking mental health care that exists for physicians. So I can say more about that if you're interested. That's really the framework that we built Tend Health. And we work with individuals now in 31 states. We're available to see patients in 31 states and also work with organizations to provide the mental health care, an identified population, primarily trainee populations. We work with several organizations to care for the entire population of their trainees, residents, and fellows. Yeah. Let's talk about the barriers. That's, I think, a good starting point is what are some of those barriers that exist? Yeah. So there are some, I think, some known and explicit external barriers for physicians seeking mental health care, not the least of which is that a lot of the licensing applications for medical licensure ask pretty invasive questions about mental health and mental health and substance use history and history of treatment. You you don't have to be around medicine too long to know that you don't talk about that if you don't seek care. And even beyond the initial licensing process, people have to get credentialed. So once you're in a hospital setting, you have to get credentialed to be able to provide various kinds of services. And that credentialing process, even if you've passed the hurdle of the licensure, the credentialing process can actually be even more invasive. And so people have to answer questions that, yes, I've sought mental health care. Yes, I've been diagnosed with something the inquiry can go very deep, very quickly into people's privacy. So that's a very real external barrier. And people are scared of getting denied privileges and getting denied various kinds of opportunities because of that history. So that is a known external barrier that exists. And 
a lot of that gets internalized through stigma. And then the culture of medicine and the culture of medical training is one that really amplifies a sense of self-determination and amplifies a sense of strength and fortitude and ability to get through anything and not show weakness and ultimately perfectionism. The notion of needing to, quote unquote, talk to somebody gets equated with weakness for a lot of physicians and and fear of what will happen because of these parameters that are set up. And then an internalized sense of something must be wrong with me if I have to seek help outside of myself. Yeah, that's a lot of big ones. And I just think of the first ones you mentioned, those in themselves, I think would be would make it challenging. I'm thinking if I'm in that situation, I would be like, maybe I don't even want to go see someone in mental health for not even to solve a problem, but to like be proactive about my mental health. Like maybe I don't even want to have that on my medical record in the first place in fear of that it might get, it ding my medical records. And that's not even assuming I have a condition of some sort like bipolar or something that's very manageable and should, you know, is that kind of the feeling people you see people having is they're just kind of fearful of even really having that on the record or even starting that conversation. Absolutely. Absolutely. And there are, I mean, there are stories of people getting denied certain things because things are in their record that those, the, your, you know, your diagnosis can go into a national data bank. You can't be discoverable in that way. So, I mean, I've been in a position because of previous services that I've applied, not at Tend Health, we have created a service that does not actually go through insurance unless somebody wants it to. They can actually have a choice in that matter. And so we mm. have maximized pride and confidentiality and accessibility in that model. Yes. So people have had, and I've had to write letters for people even seeking certain kinds of insurance because they have a diet, they have a mental health diagnosis in their record that is discoverable through the process of getting various types of insurance. And I've had to, you know, document that they're well-managed and well-controlled and that there's not a risk here, but it's real. And then when you add on top of that, the culture of medicine and the perfectionism is really all that you're describing, like you said, is kind of wrapped up in perfectionism that is the worst enemy of seeking medical help or, you know, particularly mental health. And that, that idea gets doubled down if somebody is really suffering and if you swim in the waters of perfectionism and you should be able to handle it, you have an additional barrier that is, is present around your own sense of not being capable. Not only do you need help, but you're, right, you're so incapable of solving that for yourself. And you get so much suffering and suffering in silence and kind of, it's this paradox of a field where people are expected to be so empathetic and compassionate towards others and display so little of that towards themselves. That's a tough time. Do you think uh, in training it is amped up even more so? I think that you know, there are stereotypes for a reason. And so some of this really does depend on specialty. So probably, you know, in geography and location and where you're training, there probably are some places that are trying to do a better job of making space for this. But in training, there is the explicit curriculum and then there is the hidden curriculum. And the hidden curriculum is very much around culture and how do people meet 
not being okay? And what what are people told? And what do you hear about other people not being okay in that environment? I think in the training environment, it is it's almost amplified because you're in a space where you are expected to know almost two steps ahead of what you actually, you know, probably shouldn't or could know based on your level of training. In a lot of training environments, there's still a lot of very explicit, what's been called sort of pimping of asking people questions sort of on the spot and creating an environment where you have the person directly who's being asked it. But a lot of this training happens in teams still. And so there's a lot of vicarious learning that happens and you can see how somebody is responded to if they don't know the answer. So this is imperative to know the answer, to be right, to be curious, to ask good questions, to be on top of things. And that's the expectation. And you can learn and see, even if you're not the person who's experiencing that, you get the message pretty quickly of what is expected. I think in training, actually, it may be worse than when people are out of training, depending on their environment. You're, I guess, you're more, you don't have as much control. So you're kind of just, if you're in that environment, there's not as much probably that you could can do or you're kind of subjective to the culture or whatever it's going to be it's going to happen constant evaluation i mean the thing about being in training is that even when somebody is asking you a question sort of right off the record assuming they're one of your attendings or one of your chiefs you are constantly being evaluated Mm -hmm. in all aspects not just your medical knowledge but your professionalism and your interpersonal style so there's not a lot of safety and protection for people to reveal what might be happening underneath the surface without fear around it being evaluated in a particular way even if it's not always we don't say that there's not some very kind of humane medical educators and trainers but the perception is that this is not safe to reveal. Yeah. So I guess for all of those listening that are in training, it is okay to be not okay. I, you know, one of the reasons I really love working with trainees as a psychologist, and we do, we, this is really our primary work at Tend Health, again, is partnering with residency programs to care for their residents, is I'm always looking at this in a parallel process of what right. is somebody's experience in their own suffering and how do they bring that to their role as a physician? Because there's always a beautiful learning there of really understanding what it's like to not feel okay in themselves and how that can really serve them in their role as a physician because that's who they face every day, regardless of specialty, right? You're facing individuals and families, probably not on the best day of their life with their own amount of suffering and anxiety and uncertainty. And so when you can really have a lived experience of that for yourself, you can show up as a doctor in that way with so much deeper presence and compassion. Yeah, perfectionism is like not really, it's, not human it's unnatural that's the part that's counterintuitive it's like you get kind of caught up in a cycle like that and you're actually it's not possible and it's not really human and you catch on to that pretty quick that people are not being i guess totally you know invulnerable is the word i'm thinking and it's just rubs off on people but we you know if you're if you live long enough you realize humans are flawed at the end of the day you know we actually have a lot of flaws (laughs) And embracing them, I think, is the opposite of perfectionism. 
And we've all known that experience too, I think, um, you know, either with a family member or seeking our own care is we can sense authenticity into authenticity. It feels a lot better for us to connect with somebody who's being authentic and somebody who is, right, has that air of ego or perfectionism to them. It's just really hard, again, I think, particularly in this crucible training to toggle that because it does feel like there's such an expectation for that, that, that armor and that perfectionism to present up the chain because medicine is quite hierarchical and then to toggle it and be able to then just sort of turn it off in other clinical settings. The big ask. So what happens when, I guess I'm thinking more in the younger setting and training or kind of early in the career field, what happens when this gets a little out of hand or maybe even just you continue to bury your head in the sand? That's the, it seems like the temptation as you just kind of let it be and don't address anything. What are some of the symptoms that start to present themselves when you've, you're in this situation where you're just locked into this kind of setting that people observe? Yeah, I mean, the most tragic end result of that, right, is taking one's own life or dying by suicide, which we see a rate among physicians that, you know, over 400 physicians die by suicide every year. And the rate is, you know, is certainly well beyond what would be true for their age match sort of gender and cohort. Mm. And so that's the end result. But shy of that, because of this phenomenon you're talking about, which is kind of burying it, hiding it, not seeking help, you actually can get a lot of distress positions where you're, it's manifesting in other kinds of behavioral problems. So substance use is not an uncommon one right, that initially starts as a solution to the stress and to the problems and kind of trying to quiet all the internal noise and eventually can take on a life of its own and become a big problem. Or other kinds of ways of behaviorally acting out that often are in the shadows or have some shame elements to them. So that can be, you know, sort of gambling or misuse of money. It could show up in other kind of pornography or sex-related behaviors, even, you know, shopping those kinds of things can show up and they, for some period of time, can be kept private, right? You can have those indulgences and have those ways of like meeting the stress that don't show up easily to the world as a problem for some period of time. And you will also see a lot of tension in relationships and this can show up in people's bodies. It can certainly show up physically. I will often see that is a a more socially acceptable way. And not that's a conscious process of somebody saying, right, I'm going to manifest migraine headaches <laughs> or I'm going to, you know, sort of manifest something in my body. But because it's so hard for it to show up emotionally for people and it gets suppressed, it ultimately has to come out somewhere. And so, so some kind of physical manifestation can be there as well. And even before people will say that they're feeling really sad or really overwhelmed or really anxious, I will see it show up as pro- problematic interpersonal relationships. People get a really much, uh, much lower frustration tolerance and have much higher irritability. And so people will act in ways, you know, in the workplace where somebody will be like, that's unusual. That's not really like. Yeah, you know, that didn't make sense. Yeah. Eventually or inevitably, I guess everyone has like 
a public failure or something along those lines where they screw up or something. And I feel like that can be kind of a blow up situation where you've hidden it for a, a long time. And then when you have a, and then the culture on top of it is probably not helpful. But when you have something that becomes like public on top of all this, making that creates, prob, you know, potential or I would think higher likelihood of the spiral making it a lot worse fast. People are afraid. And I saw this in the Air Force as well as a psychologist, right? Nobody wants to go see the mental health clinician because they're afraid of getting their weapon taken away or they're afraid of getting, you know, a do not fly order or something like that. And the same is true, right, in a culture of healthcare is nobody wants to have certain privileges taken away. And yet when then something comes to light like that or there's some problem, medicine is also very quick to say, what did you do wrong? And, you know, you have you know, sort of risk management gets involved when there's a, you know, when there's a negative outcome and even, you know, and negative outcomes happen, even if everything was done correctly. But there is a little bit of a knee jerk reaction in that culture of like, what did you do wrong? And so, again, people internalize. And so if you're not feeling OK emotionally as well, it's a very small step to write what's wrong with me. And I think so if we're looping in some of the financial aspects of the life setting career track some of those like amp it up too so in training you know you got the average resident or fellow has like six figure like 200 to 400 sometimes a lot higher 800,000 student loan balances and uh, you know a modest income that has no it's like you're making 50,000 a year and you owe 500,000 in student loans so it's like this I've noticed this pressure you know as you would expect financially which kind of feels like restricted you're like locked kind of you know to the profession and i would think that it would probably amp all this stuff we're talking about up even more i think you're speaking to something that i will have conversations with but it's not well appreciated i think in general as a really substantial stressor because people do feel like they get tighter and tighter into a process where there's not very many off-ramps and so that amplifies the sense of I can't not be okay or I can't seek help because I have to get across this finish line because it's the only opportunity for me to mm. deal with the financial, my financial profile that is here in, in pursuit of this goal. And so I can't have anything that might present in a barrier to, to that. Absolutely. And that's what that does. It just limits your future choices. And this is kind of a big example of it. But in, in for a lot of people, it's kind of the a necessary aspect of getting into the career field, but it's just one of the added factors. But that's a lot of stuff, you know, like how do you start to deal with all that? And I think the temptation for, I mean, I'm kind of like this, I'm like, I'm going to work through it. And that's not the right approach, by the way. But, <laughs> but that's my... I don't know, personality type, but it, I'd see that being a very tempting route. But the problem with that in this sort of circumstance is it definitely compounds it and probably increases the chance of these blowups, but, and even makes it harder to seek help in the future. So what is the right way to do it for people, even, and maybe they're hopefully early on in, in this and yeah. kind of resonating with some of these things we're bringing up? This is one of, again, one of the reasons that I really love working with trainees. And I'm hopeful just generationally that the idea of talking with a mental health expert is becoming less 
scary for people over time. But it is one of the reasons I love working with trainees and partnering with organizations to care for their trainees, because if we can limit the barriers in terms of scheduling, so at, you know, at Tend Health, they said prioritize access. So we see people, you know, in the evenings or on the weekends where we can be responsive to people's residency schedules because they don't have control. So if you can minimize the barriers for access, that's really huge, right, to make it really easy. I've noticed in working with physicians through a video format, there is actually something about them being in their own space that is quite facilitative. So you don't have the in-person and there's all this sense of like, oh, well, you lose the in-person. But what I've noticed I gain is that they can be out of uniform. They don't have to wear their white coat. The stethoscope isn't around their neck. They're in a place where they can be human first. They don't have to, you know, show up and worry about running into patients to come into my office. They can really be human first. And so that creates, I think, some accessibility, the interpersonal accessibility. And when we can, when we partner with organizations, we can work with trainees in a way, right, again, that doesn't go on their health insurance. We're not invested in making a diagnosis. We work with some organizations where they basically set everybody up for a wellness visit, just as you would have a physical with your PCP. And so they can have this conversation and it can disabuse them of all of the worries and fears about talking to a mental health expert. I remember talking with a, a young surgeon once who was, you know, was able to name how he was so anxious talking with me and so nervous about it because it felt so intimate to him, which right to me is like, how does it get any more intimate than being like in somebody's abdomen? <laughs> that feels pretty intimate to me. And he's like, I'll do that all day long. This is really tough. And, and so to be able to have institutions actually invest in their trainees and in their workforce in a way that really normalizes this and gives people an opportunity to just start with a kick the tires conversation to know that it's it doesn't I'm not trying to have some big reveal or find you know sort of the thing that's wrong with you or have you tell me you know your most precious deepest darkest secret is to create a space where people feel like they can have some confidentiality and a chance to talk about things in a way that is actually different than their other, the regular conversation yeah. in a non-evaluative way. So that's the biggest thing is just if there is an opportunity for people to kind of walk into that space and then, and also not have to be in charge of it, right? There's so much that they have to hold and be in control of is just for a little bit of time, kind of be a recipient of and see where that process goes. Yeah. And there's no, you know, diagnosis. I think there's a misconception sometimes when you go to see someone in the medical field, it's like, you're saying the problem, what, what, what are we going to solve here? And what's the diagnosis? Like, what's my diagnosis at the end of the conversation? So it's more, it sounds like what, like what you're describing is very much more preventative kind of focused is, and everybody has mental health is a part of everyone. And you're not, I think personally, every person that exists would benefit from having conversations about their mental health. And the chances are the less you've talked about it, the more likely you would benefit. It's just kind of interesting. Right. I mean, right. The truth is we all have an inner life. We all do. 
And and once you get into this space of medicine, like ultimately it's a human endeavor. You may operate with some robots as well, but ultimately it is a human endeavor. And I hope it always will be for the most part. And you bring your you bring yourself to that. So if you're not if you're not tuning your instrument, you know, and even if you're in a specialty that is so highly technical and procedural, it's there it's still a part of you that you have to bring to that, even if it's just as a translator for what's happening in the technical or procedural space. And if we're not tuning that instrument and spending some time with our inner world and how that is manifesting in our professional life, it will get rusty. It just will. So, right. Yeah. And the worst is when you don't realize it, I think, and it just kind of shows up. And that's where you get the situations like you were describing, like, that doesn't make any sense how, why they were doing that. And that also probably, it's good to remember that when you think of people that like blow up out of the, you know, out of the blue and you're probably thinking what a jerk, but like in reality, there's probably some unaddressed issues that they have that's causing it all. Usually people don't do that just for no reason. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, that's the lens that I work (laughs) through when I see people who are just sort of behaving in a way that feels like overly aggressive or overly dramatic for the situation. I just think, oh, what's what's going on with them? (laughs) Yeah. So how so you your focus is counseling and how does it how does counseling differ from like therapy and coaching? And those are maybe there's a lot of overlap or maybe not. I'm curious your take on the differences of those two. Yeah, I mean, I think about this sort of, again, kind of on a continuum, right? In the same way you might think about other sorts of a medical care or medical interventions. And so I think this idea of like a check-in, a kind of a wellness visit for your behavioral health, the same way you would do as a physical is really something we could all benefit from and is truly at this preventive level. And often finding and naming very explicitly the helpful coping strategies that people are using because life is stressful. Medical training is incredibly stressful. And so to just call out what's working well for you and because some of effective stress management is dialing down the things that um, are unskillful and unhelpful and just amplifying the things that are. And we all have coping strategies. It's just a matter of how skillful or unskillful they are. Yeah. So like, what are some examples of the, what are examples of the coping? I'm thinking of like working out versus drinking or two coping strategies. Potentially. Yeah. Yeah. That, yeah. And so it's, yeah. So talking with people that really gets it. I mean, self-awareness, I feel like is the bedrock and the superpower in all of this. If we can sort of be honest with ourselves and be aware because drinking a beer in and of itself or, you know, a glass of wine, that is not a problem. It may be very healthy coping strategy at that level. And then, you know, what is happening when that sort of ramps up to a level that's unhelpful? Exercise, even at the extreme, right, can show up in an unhealthy way if it's too, if it's too prescriptive and too intense. And so, you know, I've definitely worked with trainees where that as a coping strategy has gotten, has interfered on their training pathway because they have needed to do it in a particular regimen, right, and a little bit more obsessively than is actually helpful. So, but, you know, certainly exercise, looking at sleep, now, there's a lot of ways in which trainees aren't 
aren't don't have a lot of control over their and their sleep schedules. And it's one of the things that as much as we've learned about sleep through the years, most training programs still mess with sleep in a way that uh, on one hand, there has to there, you know, the service has to get covered and it has to happen. But I don't you know, if, if you had a sleep scientist overlooking all of the training schedules, that would surely send them into some sort of seizure activity. The sleep scientists would just not approve. And then social connection and finding really consistent and healthy ways to be in community that really supports supports us and can get challenged in times of residency of working 80 plus hours a week. So there's a variety of those, you know, of those things that kind of we can look at in a wellness visit to to also see what happens when people are humming along and doing okay. And then what happens when you hit a period of really intense stress. And for most of us that when we hit that period of intense stress, all of our good intentions go out the window because our ability to use our our thinking part of our brain and our willpower and our executive functioning gets compromised because we're exhausted or really stressed. So that's when you'll see people say, well, you know, now I'm just stopping for fast food on the way home every night. And now I'm, you know, I'm instead of like going into bed, I'm watching Netflix for three hours and falling asleep on the couch and I'm waking up with a crank in my neck because I'm not going to bed. Like it's the high stress periods. They You'll see those things happen. So trying to problem solve and plan for those in advance is something that we can do. And then so and coaching really has to do with sort of backing up the continuum. Coaching is really around people having kind of an identified either target thing that they want to work on kind of behavior or it's coaching is really effective in transition times or planning for transition times. So it has a not as a more sort of narrow in its guardrails around sort of the purpose and function of it. And it tends to be much directive than you might see in in kind of counseling or therapy. And then sort of backing up from that would be counseling or therapy. Again, it doesn't have to be based on a specific diagnosis, but just on a, because there's a level of distress and there's some level of impairment that's happening. And that's kind of transdiagnostic. So it doesn't really matter what is there, but counseling can be really effective if there is distress and impairment. And that more intensive services beyond that, including, you know, medication management. Yeah. I think if you're into improving your overall health, which I think most physicians would probably agree that they're into being responsible with their overall health. I mean, that that's just kind of one piece of pie. And it's probably in one of the most overlooked areas is there mental health and you mentioned emotional intelligence and that's kind of like almost i don't know like superpowers the right word but did you say superpower earlier i think that's like a good it's just a hidden i mean it's such a basic and fundamental thing but so much overlooked and it ties into what you're doing and you can almost help people make huge steps towards that that area but i think the more people that realize or connect the dots with that. Because I always, I'm, I used to think of anytime you talk about mental health, it just goes negative. It's like, you know, I don't have a condition. Right, right. I am, one of the reasons I love the model that we've created at Tend Health and why, and not going through insurance companies and ideally having organizations support their trainees getting the services because it frees us up from all of that. I don't have to spend my first hour with you doing massive data extraction around your history, you know, and I 
you know, and truly, I mean, I don't, I really, it's been stressful for me to work in a model where I've had to give somebody a diagnosis in order to get insurance reimbursement to cover their care because there's no diagnosis of residency-induced distress. And yet it's mostly, (laughs) right? What I see is like you are in this time of intense personal professional growth and development with very few levers of control. Like, I don't need to put a diagnosis on that. And I have a lot of things I can offer you that would actually make that more easeful and more useful for you going through that doesn't require me saying that you have some pathology. Right. So what does the process look like? It's, it sounds like starting out, you are typically kind of focusing on just general wellness and understanding situation. But what is, how does that process work? How does somebody in your all setup typically go through working on this? Yeah. So we, it, so if we are partnered with, and people can come to see us sort of direct, we're in LinkedIn, direct to consumer. So anybody can access us in any of the 31 states we deliver care. But with the organizations that we have contracts with, we, some of them have opted for these kind of, you know, everybody gets a wellness check-in, which I think is an incredibly insightful and proactive way to be in this space, knowing how stressful residency is. And otherwise it's all self-referral people. We just continuously get our message out to the programs that we're here and we're available. All of our clinicians have lived experience in healthcare settings. So they all know, and most of them in training settings, so they all know what it's like to be, you know, in terms of working alongside medical students and residents and attending and to work in that space. So they, you're not explaining what it means to be on night float. You're not explaining what it means to be post-call or something. You, they have a, they have an understanding of that and all the various hurdles that people have to jump through their medical training. And so it's all self-referral. People can just come to us and nobody has to know about it. Their training program doesn't have to know about it. GME doesn't have to know about it. And there's no other reporting out. So it, we have built something that we feel like is really safe and protective. And our hope is to see as many trainees in those settings as we can to, to normalize it and really to normalize their experience during an incredibly stressful time and ideally to help them grow as people and mainly as professionals as well. So I heard you say you, you don't have a long list of intake questions, which I think is excellent. And you, I think you said you, you kind of have more of a non-directive, more inquisitive or question. Is that kind of how it flows? You're typically help, you know, asking questions to help guide the process. What is that? I mean, do you have some examples of what that looks like? Because I, I think it can be an intimidating little step there. It's like, when pe- but but I've been I've worked with therapists or counselors and when you have the first meeting, I mean as long as you're working with someone that's solid and does it the right way, it's much less intimidating than it seems. So yeah. maybe if yeah. you could give some little snippets of what that actually looks like. Yeah, and I appreciate you calling that out because I mean one of the reasons we don't like have people fill out all of this stuff, you know, these forms and information is. If you've ever tried to seek mental health care, a lot of places do that and then may or may not have availability for you to see anyone. They've been through that you know, process for family members as well. And it's just, it's painful <laughs> before you even sort of get you know, to sit down with somebody. And so I often start actually, you know, and I'm just an inherently curious person and enjoy people. And so I really like to start with the things that that people have probably shared and talked about many times over, which is, you know, tell me about your journey into medicine. 
right? It's really disarming because they're like, oh, I know this, right? <laughs> I've done this, but not in a way that somebody is evaluating whether you're right for this program or not, but just like, oh, why pediatrics? I'm so curious, sir. You know, was this the place you wanted to match? Tell me about that process. And so we can get into it through a storyline that feels familiar and comfortable to them. So that's usually where I start. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you're just asking, you know, no judgment and very curious questions. And there's not a, a lot of you having the no insurance, no lack of institutional. I mean, in it. That, that stuff's a big deal and helps you kind of really hone in on what is best for them. I am, I did not realize I'm very happy to hear that some of these institutions are adopting it as a program. That's, I guess, definitely a nice positive sign because I think, like we said at the very beginning, some of the big underlying issues are that the culture and the kind of the, the medicine in general has not really embrace this as an issue, but is that what you're seeing? Is that something you're seeing in the future is more and more, is this something that's being adopted well? Well, we're getting good traction. How much of this is pandemic related? How much of this is sort of a movement in the field? I will say some of the larger institutions, I think, have, well, a couple of things have happened. I think ACGME, which is the accrediting body for residencies and fellowships, has paid more attention to well-being and has put some imperatives in place for accreditation that have recognized the need for mental health care. Now, how that gets operationalized and implemented varies a lot by institution. So there has to be some attention to it so people can sort of screen and identify and get services. And then you see all over the map what that means. For some, it means, sure, they can go to the local emergency room for a psychiatric emergency and other places have it much more dialed. A lot of big institutions have solved for it through their own departments of psychiatry, kind of internal in the department of psychiatry, which on one hand can capitalize perhaps on some trust and some access because it's so close. We have built a model where it actually, in some ways, that closeness we feel like is, you know, under the roof, it actually, it, it doesn't feel as protected and private and safe. And also increases likelihood of conflict of interest or having, you know, run-ins with somebody in some other capacity who might also be providing your mental health care and leaves a lot of the psychiatry trainees or anybody who cross covers in psychiatry kind of out of service. So we feel like we've built something that that really is will have a close relationship with the institution, but really maximize that privacy and accessibility. Yeah. So we're starting to get traction and nice. uh, are hopeful for more. Yes. I like it. Well, as we start to wrap up, how can people find out more about your company and what you're yeah. doing? Yeah, I appreciate you asking. So you can find us online. We're at tend.health, www.tend, T-E-N-D, like tending to .health. And you can read more about me on that on that page as well and about my co-founder and our philosophy. And we love to hear from people. So my email is tina, T-I-N-A, at tend.health. And I welcome my email from any of your listeners or inquiries about our services or anything we talked about. Awesome. Well, Christina, I enjoy talking with you and thanks for sitting down with me to talk about this. Thanks so much for the opportunity, Daniel. I appreciate it. Be well. Thank you very much.
please know that anything I've said today in this podcast should not be considered advice. It is completely for educational and entertainment purposes only. It would be best to view me as just another guy talking about money on the internet. For advice, please consult your advisors. If you don't happen to have a financial advisor already, I happen to know a firm that's absolutely fantastic. It's actually the firm I started and currently run now, Ren Financial Planning. And we would love to get to know you better and see if we might be able to help. Feel free to reach out anytime to schedule an introductory meeting. You can find more info about us at www.renfinancial.com.